0: This is Jennifer Say. She's from Allentown, Pennsylvania, attends Central Catholic High there, and she's preparing to work the balance beam. Jennifer just recently won our national championships to become our national champion. That was a planned position she held and then went into a front walkover. And welcome on in everybody to the Check Your Brain podcast hosted by me Tony Mazer. If you are on YouTube and Rumble, well you get to see me. Hi everybody. You see our little boxes in the corner. That is my podcast logo. I do have a free podcast that goes out every week wherever you get your podcast, which is this one. Uh, But if you want more content from me to go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R, for just three bucks a month, you get content where I rant on solo shows and I have guests on. And sometimes I give you bonus content if you give me a couple extra bucks a month. But if you don't feel like uh, being shaken down and hustled by me for more money. Uh, I, the free podcast is out. And I also do another rumble show where I do kind of what I do on Patreon, but I put that out for you folks for free, usually on Thursday. So go check that out. But, uh, yeah, this is the free podcast where I have a lot of guests on and what this guest really has kind of, been a bit of a renaissance woman and has surfaced in a couple of arenas. In fact, uh, no pun intended, but one of them a literal arena. And that is my guest today, Jennifer Say. Thank you for doing this, by the way.
1: Yeah, happy to be here. Nice to meet you.
0: So you are, uh, for people who heard about your name before, they're like, wait a second, why have I heard this person's name a couple of different times? Because usually when you're a young Uh, like you see a lot of uh, gymnasts or uh, Olympians, and they kind of make a lot of appearances, they'll be on some uh, Wheaties boxes and everything, but you, uh, we're, a, we're we're a young gymnast, and then eventually you rose up the ranks in corporate America. So people, kind of, you've been in the public eye for, gosh, since the since the eighties. I don't mean to age you, but I mean that's, that's you've been <laughs> around that long. People could find the record. So uh, for <laughs> folks who aren't aware of who you are, I guess give a little bit of the backstory from you being a sure. gymnast to working your way up into corporate America.
1: Yeah, I was an elite gymnast as a child. I never made a Wheaties box, but I made the national team for about seven eight years i think it's hard to count um first time being i think 1981 aging myself um i went to world championships and i was the national champion in 1986 so um and i ended up retiring or walking away from the sport just a month before the olympic trials in 1988 which is kind of part of because i think as a gymnast i'm less known for my gymnastics, it's been said I was the worst national champion that ever existed, that may be true, (laughs) it doesn't really matter, Um, but more known for uh, much later in 2008, having spoken out about the abuses, uh, the physical, sexual, emotional abuse in gymnastics. I wrote a memoir my first book called Chalked Up, which came out in 2008 and I was, gosh, I mean, I was close to 40 at the time the book came out. So obviously not a gymnast anymore and hadn't competed in many, many years and was already a vice president um, in corporate America at Levi's where I worked at the time. You know, so I had moved on. I had two kids, I was married, Um, but I felt compelled to write this book because, you know, 20 or so years out of competing, I was still really struggling with the treatment that we, you know, labored under as young athletes you know gymnasts are very young um like i said i made my first national team when i was like 11. you know i was just a baby really i was training five six hours a day already and the coaching is really cruel it's an incredibly cruel coaching culture it's brutal um you know outside of the sexual abuse which is i think now kind of understood because of the case of larry Nasser, which i can mention later um but the the physical and emotional abuse is absolutely Brutal. I mean, everything from you know, I was weighed in. my weight was announced on the loudspeaker at the gym. I was shamed and fat shamed for, you know, having one percent body fat and weighing you know, ninety eight pounds when I was eighteen, not just in the gym by my coaches, but by like the nutritionist hired by team USA. I mean, this is how bad it was, um forced to train on very serious injuries um, competed and trained on a broken ankle for two years at the end of my career. Uh, eating disorders are rampant. You know, we were often told you need to lose three pounds by tomorrow, tomorrow, by any means necessary. Um, you know, what does that mean to a 13 year old? <laughs> that mm-hmm. means I'm going to go home and do something that's not very good for me. Um, so, you know, and this is, that's, that's the abuses around, you know, training on injuries and, and the fat shaming, but just the general treatment, you know, you're a lazy piece of garbage, you're a piece of shit, like all this shit was just sorry, uh, was no, just sort of normal, yeah, absolutely. It was normal, and par for the course. And you were kind of made to feel like, well, if this bothers me, if I am upset by this, if I feel wounded, because of this treatment, then I am weak. And so I better just keep my mouth shut and keep going. But of course, it affects you and your self esteem. And so all of that is to say, by the time I was 40, I still was sort of dealing with some of the repercussions of this. And despite success in gymnastics, as well as in the corporate world, I had cripplingly low self-esteem and terrible anxiety. And I still had like PTSD nightmares about gymnastics. And so I wrote the book because I was just trying to kind of make sense of it. And I went to wrote the book and I went to a lot of therapy <laughs> and I came to understand that essentially it's like being an abused child, right? Like if a, if a mother hits her kid, she, she usually will say something to the effect of, well, I wouldn't have to hit you if you weren't so bad. If you, yeah. So it's your fault you were abused. And that's kind of how I what I believed about myself. I got over that in the last 10 years. Um, but so I'm more known for that because it was the first first person account of what it was like in the sport. You know, there had been one journalistic account before that, but that was it.
0: Yeah. And it, it's it's fascinating because you're you're dealing with very young, vulnerable women at that time who are trying to compete. I saw the quote there from uh, Dominique Mosiano, who, by the way, is from my neck of the woods here in Cleveland. Oh, Ohio. nice. She's a and, friend. Uh, she was She was one of my first crushes, and I got to meet her. And I'm like, OK, yeah, that's uh, remember when I was a kid, you were a kid, and uh, now She's everyone's great. married. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but it was like one of those really cool things. But um, what I find interesting is that you're dealing with the vulnerability of, of kids you essentially are children and, uh, trying to compete at such a high level. And I think also part of that too, that I know you've chronicled a little bit is that uncertainty and that there are certain sports where you move on to bigger and better things. So if you're a high school football player, you're the starting quarterback, you know, that you'll get a scholarship to college. Well, then you get a scholarship to college. You're the starting quarterback at insert major university and it's leading to something, but Think about a professional wrestler, for example. Okay, yeah, yeah. he's a wrestler in high school, but usually most people are not going to go into the WWE or yeah. all these other leagues. That when you get done playing your wrestling in high school and college, that's about it. And you have to figure out, you have to pivot. And your pivoting in this case is, is really fascinating because, you know, I know Dominique does a lot of personal appearances. And I know uh, other young Olympians uh, were doing this, especially gymnasts and everything. But eventually your body catches up to you. And you can't do that when you're 45, 50, 60 years old, doing back handsprings and, and right. pommel horse and everything like that. So eventually you have to pivot, which you did. And it's, yeah. it's fascinating how you, like I said earlier, you resurfaced uh, and uh, really made a name for yourself.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, one of the things I, I wrote about in my first book and possibly in my second, I can't even remember what I said at this point. Um, you know, I went to college and it felt like retirement. Like I was exhausted. I'd already had a career for 15 years. I was 20 years old. I went a little late and I, you know, I had no gymnastics career ahead of me. I lived in a dorm. With a bunch of guys who were playing football and baseball and tennis in college and they went on to become professionals so they were i was as good as they were at my sport but there was no future for me and unless you're simone biles which no one is in the whole world you have you don't make money even if you went to the olympics i mean i know so many olympians from the last you know 20 or 30 years a scant few are making any money from the sport you go on and you have a regular life and you get a job and you like do normal stuff so i never had any intentions of staying connected to the sport i didn't want to be a coach you know uh dominique does own a gym um and arguably was much more famous than me. You know, she was a gold medalist in 1996. So I didn't want to own a gym. I didn't want to be a judge. I didn't want to do any of that. I just wanted to put it all behind me. It didn't end all that well. I felt sort of ashamed. In fact, now I feel quite proud of what I achieved. So I just figured I'll go to college and get a job like a normal person and work my way up whatever ladder I find. So, you know, that's what I did. I like officially became like a normal person aggressively. So I would argue in college because I really wanted to kind of find an identity in the world that was not as a gymnast, as a good little girl, obedient gymnast, because that's so what were we were. you
0: were really trying to go and separate yourself from, uh, this is Jennifer say, the gymnast and Jennifer say, the career woman, businesswoman, or student, or whatever the case is that you, like you said, you lived a different life and now you want to start a new path.
1: Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I completely walked away from the sport. I didn't do it in college until I wrote the book. 20 years later, I had nothing to do with the sport. I hadn't been to a gymnastics meet. I didn't really have friends from the sport. I just sort of was like a regular person. And I, um, you know, I went to college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was pretty confused because I was still depressed and like had all this you know garbage that I was dealing with from gymnastics and mostly I wanted to rest. But um, I got through college and then graduated and it was the recession and I was You know, I needed a job and I took a job in an advertising agency, um, not really wanting to work in corporate America. That had never been my dream. Um, I thought I'd do something in a creative field, um, but I ended up liking it and I was good at it. And there was uh, some creativity to it at an ad agency. It was just sort of intersecting with commerce. And eventually, maybe six, seven years later, I found myself at Levi's as a marketing assistant there and I stayed 23 years.
0: So you went. You grew up in New Jersey, and here you are at Stanford. You go all the way across the country, and you're working for a a large Bay Area name in Levi Strauss. Uh, That's incredible. Going from again an East Coaster that, and then you spend, gosh, what, almost thirty five years in on the West Coast. And uh, was that a bit of a culture shock for you?
1: Oh my gosh. No, I loved it. I, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid because I went to different gyms. So I didn't have any real connection. I mean, it was always in South Jersey, Philadelphia, ended up in Allentown. I went to three different high schools though. So you can imagine if you go to three different high schools, you don't feel totally connected to that community. And when I got to Stanford in the Bay area, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm home. Like, this is amazing. And I made the best friends of my life. And then I moved to the city after I finished college. And it was 1992 and I never had lived in a place that felt like home, which is, I, I left there a couple of years ago. I find it very sad what's happened to that city. We can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always tell people, if you ever felt like a weirdo, if you ever felt like you didn't fit in, San Francisco was the place for you. It was just yeah, before, filled
0: with weirdos. San Francisco was the key San Francisco weird type of <laughs> type of people. Yeah, it
1: had the Austin, right? Um, it's not that anymore. In fact, I would, I've would. i often said it's the home of such aggressive conformity at this point that it became unlivable for me. And I left two and a half years ago, but I loved it, loved it, loved it. Uh, tech took over, this sort of fake um, altruism took over and it just became very uniform and conformist and it was no longer for me, but that took a good 30 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and and what's interesting because reading your book and reading what you've and and listening to you on other podcasts and interviews, you've talked about how with being with Levi and resurrecting that brand. And here I think a lot of people were kind of confused by that because you think, when you think of jeans, when you think of this, the, the whole clothing, like, I mean, there was a Levi outlet we would always go to and Levi stores and you think of it's Levi's and almost everyone else. Brett Favre is, has Wrangler jeans and everything yeah. and, you know, with the uh, George Thorough good music and throwing a football around the backyard. But for the most part, it was like, okay, yeah, that's Wrangler, but I'm getting my Levi's. I'm getting, I, I have to get this. Uh, it's just, it was a recognizable brand. It was a legacy brand, but I didn't realize that it had gone through so many problems and that you really helped resurrect it and put them back back on the map again.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good description. Um, obviously, you know, this is a brand that's been around 150 years, a company that's been around 170. Um, it started as a dry goods store, actually not a jeans brand. 20 years later, patent for the first blue jean, 18 18- 73. Um, And throughout the 80s and 90s, it just took off, you know, it just soared, it went international. Um, In the 80s, it was like the coolest gene you could imagine. There was this campaign called 501 Blues, which launched at the 84 Olympics. I was just a kid at the time, but like there was nothing cooler than a pair of Levi's jeans. And Um, The market was really different than it is now. I mean, now you have thousands of choices of jeans to wear. At the time, you know, you had three big players. You know, you had Levi's, Wrangler, and Lee, and that was kind of it. And I think Levi's was such a dominant force. This is well documented in many sort of Harvard Business School reviews. They became a little complacent over the course of 20 years and really lost their footing by about 2000 and and suffered a slow and steady decline of about a decade, a little more. Um, From there until in 2011, it was like, are we going to make it you know almost bankrupt in 2011 but starting in 2013 i stepped into the cmo role which is the chief marketing officer and i don't want to say it was all me see your cute cat there
0: <laughs> yeah that's horrible. Um, but there was a
1: new leadership team a new ceo and the mission was to get levi's back to its you know leadership position and we did that and in 2019 had a very successful ipo it was privately owned before that
0: yeah it's amazing because uh, i i was watching something on kodak and you think go back twenty years ago, and you say Kodak? Could you think of a brand that's more synonymous? Well, other than maybe Kleenex or Chapstick, where With when you camera. take a picture, you're taking a Kodak. It's a Kodak moment. And to think yeah. that they would have gone bankrupt, and I think Levi's was the same way. That that's right. Like you like you said, they really seemed like they got complacent. You had other companies, not only companies like Guess Jeans would come up, and you know they, they'd have the spokesmodels, the Claudia Schiffer's of the world that were on there, but when Walmart, when Target have their own brands, they're like, we can make jeans too, and we'll make them for much cheaper than you get for Levi. That it is an interesting point how it could, how a brand could slip into I – mean, or yeah, you could go car. to a store like a Kmart or a Sears that, again, 30 years ago, say can, there will be a time when there's three Kmarts left. And you're like, come on, are you kidding right. me? But right. legacy brands do get complacent.
1: Yeah, and they failed to innovate for the future, and you know, uh, evolve their message for a modern audience. And and you just described. I mean, we were getting it from all sides. You had these sort of super premium brands that started with CK Calvin Klein, and maybe the '90s, but ended with Seven Jeans, and then Rag and Bone, and then you had all these people paying two hundred plus dollars for a pair of jeans. But then Tommy Hilfiger the pro- was around. Yeah. And then you had the private label, which is what we call it, which is what you describe where you have, you know, target making their own branded jeans and those are sort of undercutting you on price. And then you had, I mean, you had a whole like cadre of brands that were just like coming out of hip hop culture. <laughs> which those or, sort or of Abercrombie,
0: Crumbie, Hollister, Aeropostale, those brands as well. You
1: have all those. Yeah, which are mid-market but, you know, became really really relevant and sold in their own stores whereas Levi's was selling in wholesale and that became sort of dated and irrelevant. So all of a sudden you're like you're like one of three players in town and now you're one of a thousand. You have a different, you need to have a different kind of competitive mindset. And we sort of lost that, but we got it back and I think rebuilt the brand and um, it became really, really cool and popular again.
0: So for all this, all this time and getting back into Levi's and it's leading me, of course, to your book, because for that time that you were there, even you putting out the book in 2008 about the, the, the atrocities happening in the gymnastics world. It, you weren't making waves as far as like negative. It's like, oh no, that's what Jennifer, she's a brand manager, eventually you became brand manager and you were a part of this and resurrecting the brand. And and like you said, there is a lot of uniform conformity that goes on in these kind of echo chambers across the country, especially in San Francisco. And you weren't really making any you know negative issues until that certain time around March of 2020, which you chronicle in your book, which uh, came out, uh, gosh, actually about a year ago right now. Um, yeah. And it's still selling. People are very interested in this topic. And that book, by the way, for folks listening is Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice uh, by Jennifer Say. It's out. It's on Amazon. And uh, it talk about how you went from being somebody that's a well-respected coworker to you, you, you finally said something, and those coworkers who would treat you so well in the hallways and you'd have coffee, you'd have lunch lunch dates, dinner dates, uh, maybe see each other on the weekends, whatever, To f- they turned their backs on you really quickly because you said very logical things in a very illogical time.
1: Yeah, it wasn't a logical time. And I, you know, to your point, I I mean, I'd always been known as someone outspoken about my beliefs. And, you know, you look back on what I said about gymnastics, because I did talk about the sexual abuse and you think, well, that wasn't controversial. I will tell you, I have some experience getting canceled. Like this was with COVID was my second rodeo. Uh, that in 2008, to say that the national team coach throughout the 80s was a rapist, that was controversial, not mm-hmm. to the people I worked with, but in the Olympic movement. And I was, oh my God, I was called every name you can imagine um, on social media, but in, in real life too. I mean, ex-teammates called into radio stations to call me a liar and a grifter and all this stuff. So um, that whole sort of cancellation thing was happening. Now, I, you know, I experienced that. I was redeemed in about 2018 when Larry Nasser, the doctor for Team USA for 30 years, who sexually abused over 500 athletes went to prison for life. Everybody said, oh, we always, Jen was right, we stood by her always. Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course, they, they misremember history. So I, my boys, I was known as someone outspoken, if not controversial. I was not, you know, con- and I, my politics very much aligned with the city because I think it's important to note it was the entire city of San Francisco that came for me. And eventually, as I became more known in my resisting lockdowns, the country, you know, there were the comedians, as we call them Mm -hmm. online, who just literally, you know, came for me. So this wasn't just about the workplace. But yeah, I was very outspoken about lockdowns and school closures in particular. Mostly I focused on um, restrictions to children. And, you know, it's very related to what I described earlier in gymnastics, because I felt like Kids aren't going to speak up for themselves if they are hurting and they are suffering. Kids try to please the adults around them. Um, Kids are resilient remember. I know. (laughs) And so, you know, I kept thinking, I wish someone had stood up for me when it was clear that bad things were happening in the gym. I wish some adult had the courage to say, this is not normal. But they didn't. And... I went, you know, and in, in, I, I was redeemed in the gymnastics world. And in 2020, I made a movie called Athlete Day, which did really well. And it won an Emmy. It's a documentary about the Larry Nassar case and the broader abuses. And everybody liked me again, except then they found out I was a COVID dissenter and they came for me. The gymnastics community really, really came for me um, in 2020. And I was outspoken from day one, even before the schools shut down. Um, and I was very measured Uh, there's a lot of the tweets in my, in my book, I wrote op-eds. There's some edits, you know, some clips from those. I, I, you know, I was very measured. I'm very diplomatic. I try to, you know, I'm not a name caller. I'm not a yeller. Um, I had the chance to kind of go back over my tweet history as I wrote the book. And I was like, I don't regret anything I said or how I said it. Mm -hmm. I conducted myself. I was composed. I was respectful. I cited facts. Um, it didn't matter I was called a racist and a eugenicist and a ableist and a Nazi
0: Grandma killer all a, the yeah
1: yeah I was a Nazi that was the good one I'm now yeah, called like Christo fascist a lot which I had to look up what that was <laughs>
0: yeah well it, and, and it's interesting because uh, I believe your husband also was pretty <laughs> was shooting my, from the hip a little bit
1: my husband is more aggressive than i am in town in real life and online people used to say to me oh but your husband that's just probably like his online you know persona because it's very aggressive and i'm like no no that's what he's like in real life um so he was a little more assertive i was very cognizant of my role in the company and wanted to always be very respectful and i also was very cognizant of not commenting on policies we had in the company. I that was part of the reason I stuck with children because kids don't work in the company. So that that was not commenting on a company policy. Um and at first in the first I don't know six months no one noticed. I didn't, you know, I had like 10 followers or something, maybe a thousand, not very many. But then, you know, those of us who were pushing back on COVID rules. There, there weren't that many of us. We found each other fast. We followed each other. So I built a little bit of a following. And then eventually I was like on the local news and started having rallies to get schools open. And people started noticing. And that's when people in the community in San Francisco started basically saying I should be fired.
0: Of course. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, what's interesting is I'm, um, so I didn't get a chance to off air tell you more about my background is I was a radio guy at the time. I work a normal job now where I get paid a lot more money. I have a little more, a lot more freedom to podcast and talk about things. But I was a radio guy that uh, I was a producer and fill in host at the time. And I was working my way. I was trying to get to, you know, whatever, potentially host a radio show. I was, uh, 2020 was the year I got married. And so I've got all this stuff going on for me and uh i remember i went out to california i was out of my i worked a part-time job too so i took time off for my uh like i actually had vacation time saved up so i can work another job and make a couple extra bucks on the side which is i worked for a, pr- a promotions company and we went out to california we're in uh, la we're in san diego march 8th of 2020 which was a sunday and i remembered we started hearing about COVID for the first couple of weeks and I'm like uh, don't touch your face, wash your hands. And then a couple of days later, I'm walking into the, what was then known as the Staples Center in Los Angeles. And I get the word that it says Tom Hanks has coronavirus. Oh,
1: right. I remember and then that. they
0: shut the NBA down. And then the NHL, yeah. which I was going to an NHL game, that was shut down. They shut down spring training. And I'm yeah. from Ohio. Which was the first state to start locking people down. They had the Arnold uh, Exposition, the Arnold Schwarzenegger weightlifting bodybuilding competition. And then uh, the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, shut the schools down. And so by the time I came back from California, the world was over. It was done. Everything was changed. So I was going to work and i basically got censored by my radio station from hosting because i quote unquote didn't right. take the coronavirus serious cuz i and and when i say that is i was talking about things like what are the repercussions here right. what are the repercussions that we can be dealing with and one of them i i, I had mentioned was about what about like all these uh, music venues or a comedy show or something and right. they said and the response was Tony is selfish because he wants to yeah. go to a concert. And I said, yeah. No, what I'm being selfish about is I'm thinking of the local venue that books yep. the people, takes the tickets, the security, the roadies, uh, the lighting guys, the sound guys, the this the this, cleaners,
1: this. the food vendors, the yeah, the All of people. It. Yeah. Yeah, and it too. bothered
0: me so much mm-hmm. at the beginning on top of, because I'm looking at all the other people with who do gig work and nobody was covering it in mainstream media, including my radio station at the time. It was all about, oh, well, we got to watch out. This could be killer. This could be deadly. And I'm like, yes, but w- look at your cost benefit analysis right now. Look at there your risk none. assessment. And I'm like, I-, I don't think this is going to work out. And I essentially got censored. It was very close to getting fired. Uh, from that job. Eventually I lost my job a couple of years later, different story. But the target was on my back at that time. Yeah. And I, I was getting people uh, sending screenshots of my tweets where I was saying like, um, what about all the people who are in Alcoholics Anonymous that got shut down? Yeah. What about the oh, people yeah. who were saved through through going to synagogue, going to church, going to or uh, whatever, some place of yeah. worship? All those got shut down, but the liquor stores are still open. The grocery stores chefs. and the fast food place is still open. And I'm just like, am I the only person who's concerned about this? And apparently I wasn't. It felt,
1: it, it felt like we were, though. It, it did feel like we were. And I feel like my husband and I in San Francisco were definitely the only ones. Um, it, there was no one. And it was difficult as I'm sure you experienced. And mm-hmm. it was easy to be like, am I missing something? But the more I read and I educated myself. And one of the reasons I got very involved on Twitter at the time is one of the cool things about Twitter, which is different than other social media is you can really like like I would reach out to doctors and ask them questions, you know, and I would say I, I asked them, you know, because I wanted to understand. You could talk directly with experts and they would answer you. And so I educated myself and everything i learned just reinforced what i already understood to be true um which is like what's the phrase about um now i'm gonna forget it but it it was like (laughs) you had this ifr which they were saying uh infection fatality rate was like well over three percent but it was well under one percent kids were not really at any risk yet they were the most restricted we were keeping or we opened bars first, uh, strip clubs in San Francisco and my son still couldn't go to high school English class or have a or, you know preschool graduation or any of it. It just didn't make sense. The kids bore the heaviest burden and were least at risk. And to me, that's not how it should ever go. But there was no thinking straight. And the more left leaning a place you lived in, the more intense it was, you know, San Francisco had the longest lockdowns of any city in America, suffered the greatest economic impacts, have more people leaving that city than any other city in the country. Seven percent of the people left in 2020 and 21. That's a huge number. Seven yeah. percent. Um, so the city is really, really suffering and have had the slowest economic recovery. Their downtown is dead. Um I was one of the people that left in 2021 because there was no sign I left in February 21. There was no sign they were going to open the schools that fall. They were threatening not to. And I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. This is not okay for my kids. It's not okay for me and for my mental health. And it doesn't even make any sense. So but you could not even ask a very polite question. What about the small business owners? What you couldn't do that without being called a murderer?
0: Yeah, you were okay. going to kill grandma because you wanted businesses to open, and it turned into, you just want to get a haircut, or you want a meal at Chili's, and it right. wasn't the case, and like <laughs> you said, you said left-leaning, and even to this day, I still see it in, I, I'm in a red state, but I'm in a blue area, and I still see yeah. masks. I mean, it is November of 2023 that we're talking, yeah. and it it almost seems like it's a true sign of a of virtue that uh, they're they're signaling to people, but it was weird how at the beginning, it was political because it shouldn't be political if we're concerned this is what it in my opinion and and i think the facts kind of back up the opinion is it shouldn't be political if we knew pretty early on and when i say early on i'm saying april of 2020 this disease is affecting older people people and immunocompromised or obese or all the above immunocompromised obese old people are probably you know forget about i mean the case fatality rate was skyrocketing yet we quarantined healthy young people and in turn they ended up gaining a lot more weight especially kids kids couldn't see their friends couldn't couldn't do any kids couldn't have a homecoming or i should say a prom they couldn't graduation football games graduation it was amazing and again if you're in a blue area you start looking around going am i the bad guy am i like i'm doing the research i'm trying to figure this out and yet here are my friends that say, Hey, let's do zoom happy hour at five o'clock. I'm like, nope. no, we're in our I, early thirties. We're healthy enough to have our own happy hour.
1: I refused. I had to at work. We were you know, working virtually for gosh, more than two years. So I had to participate in the zoom culture then, but I refused any and all zoom, happy hours, zoom, thanksgivings. I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And let me just say, you're correct. You know, this is primarily a virus that adversely impacts the elderly. You named a couple other groups, even those two other groups, far, far, far behind the elderly in terms of the impact, you know, and like there's so many autoimmune diseases out there. I have one. I am no, I am not at, extra risk like i hate lumping in the immune deficient because then everybody raises their hand something like 35% of women have an autoimmune disease no yeah. you're actually fine uh, immune deficient if you've had an organ transplant yes you're at risk but not if you have uh psoriatic arthritis you're not you're fine you're just like everybody else um yes the uh, you know those who are are severely overweight but children are mercifully protected and we just never you know We never looked that reality in the face and let kids have their lives back. And what kids have suffered now in terms of the learning loss, the ongoing mental health impacts, the weight gain, the chronic absenteeism that's happening now in school, the dropout rate, which nobody talks about, but is going to continue. Because if you fell behind freshman year and you haven't caught up yet, the likelihood of you dropping out is high. And what drove me crazy to your point is like, you just got accused of like wanting a haircut. No, I don't want a haircut, but I, or I don't care. I, I don't really get one anyway. But like when my son couldn't have a preschool graduation outside, yeah, I cared about that. These are tiny little milestones, but milestones are what make a life. And uh, you keep telling these kids that they don't matter enough to have these little milestones, whether it's prom or graduation or preschool graduation, and you give them no hope for when this will end. And so the suicide rate and the drug addiction and overdose rate for young people, because remember when you're a kid, like everything is right now. And if you have no hope that you're gonna get to go to prom next year for far too many kids who yeah, probably leaned towards depression before, but would have been fine. It just became too hopeless to continue.
0: Yeah. They, you know? when, when you had mentioned about in the book and talking about how kids are resilient, it's like kids may be resilient in some ways, but they're also their prefrontal cortex has not developed yet that they don't understand that these memories that they were robbed of. I mean, you'll you'll never get this time back in your life. Yeah. Um, thinking about the senior class of 20, this, this is one thing that really bothered me. You probably saw this uh, from your Facebook friends, too is it was the senior class and schools were shut down. Everyone's either doing Zoom school or we're just, uh, yeah, extended spring break. Do whatever you want. Play video games, watch Marvel movies, watch Tiger King. And I saw this tone deaf thing on Facebook where everybody started posting their high school class photo. And they're like, here's me in the class of 86. Here's me in the class of 72. Here's me in the class of 2005. Boy, what kind of hair? And I'm like- Do you understand how tone deaf it is that you're what you're doing is you're bragging to these seniors, whether you think or not, and spitting in their face by saying, I got to have a senior year. I went to homecoming. I was on the homecoming court. My prom was great. Too bad you can't have it. And I'm thinking, again, am I the only one who doesn't see the problem here?
1: Well, you were one of not too many in the beginning that was willing to to speak out. And I'll tell you, I get why they weren't willing if other people saw it, because it did stink. You know, look, I gave up. I ended up giving everything up um, in my life. Almost everything, not everything, because I felt so strongly about protecting children and as the, you know, the name calling and the reputational harm started to come in an attempt to silence me. I felt really, really strongly that I really needed to keep speaking up because there was so much um, actual censorship as we know now from the Twitter files, but social censorship as well. And the fact is, is I was right. I was right about all of it. Every little bit of it. And you know, one of the things I find funny is now most of the friends that I have are canceled people. <laughs> and yeah. So many, you know, a lot of them for things like like what I spoke up about, some of them, they actually did things that I'm like, whoa, that's pretty bad, <laughs> you know? I was right about all of it, and there's still no redemption at the end of, of the line Um, if you were a COVID dissident. Not yet anyway, I think at some point there may be, but certainly not yet. It was just like, you couldn't say it. And, and as we said, the deeper the city, the deeper the blue the state or city, the worse, it was, and the more conformist it was, and so, you know, my husband and I were sort of out there, almost alone on a on a limb. We found a couple, um, literally a couple people in San Francisco who were willing to kind of stand up with us, but but not very many. Um, it it really was kind of risking everything to do so which it th- i didn't think about that when i started but then when i kind of got the pushback i was like hell no i'm saying true things i get to say these things
0: yeah i get and to say these things people wanted to shame you for saying things that went against because they're like because because that was one of the problems that i noticed was this rise of the expert class that we had dr fauci you had rochelle walensky you had um francis collins and therefore Instead of having the old crossfire, the CNN show crossfire, where you can have Paul Begala on one side and Pat Buchanan on the other, and then they argue for a half hour, and then they kind of come to some kind of like, okay, well, where's a happy medium here? The expert class made it so that if you didn't agree with the expert, your opinions are now outside the Overton window of public and acceptable discourse. And that's what was wrong because it's like when Dr. Fauci literally said, I am the science, and if you are disagreeing with me, you're anti-science. So therefore, he props himself up as if you have any issue with him, it's because you have an issue with everybody else who believes in this, what seemed like it was either cult or religion. And a lot of people bought into it and felt that if you said anything that dr fauci wasn't saying then you're hitler essentially and i i, I hate using godwin's law with talking about it but that's what they were saying that seems like you appropriate said, that right now Nazis. it yeah. was it was unbelievable how and this and this wasn't just 2020 this wasn't just election this wasn't anything like that it goes into uh 2021 when now oh, we I- have the vaccine I- mandates
1: oh I- yeah, I mean, it kept getting worse. And, and I avoided talking about vaccine mandates for the most part, because my company had one. Um, but it went, I still get horrible DMs. And like, all. I mean, I still do. It's like, I, I believe it's established beyond a shadow of a doubt that closed schools were a terrible mistake mm-hmm. and incredibly harmful. And yet, you know, I'm still getting you know you're a disgusting eugenicist and you don't care if black children die that was basically the gist of it. So, you know, there were some people so convinced that they will never move away from that from that perspective but you know you mentioned earlier how politicized it came and um as somebody who is now accused of being alt right not accused but you know stated to be alt right despite having spent my entire life you know left of left of center um you know, they would shout at us that we were politicizing it. You know, I still get that you politicized mask wearing. No, I didn't, I am not the one. And the fact is, and I thought this early on in 2020, I didn't understand why there was this divide in you know sort of blue versus red. And I do think some of what drove it in the early days was just, we are gonna take a position that is in direct opposition to anything Donald Trump says. So when Donald Trump said, we need to open the schools in, I think, July of 2020, two weeks later, the American Academy of Pediatrics reversed their position. They had, before he said that, said, we need to open schools. Then he said, we need to open them. And they're like, You know we take it back we take it back i'm like if that's not the most obvious example of this being about politics not what's good for the community what's good for our society and what's good for our children and i don't know what is um but because it was politicized in that way i thought well if if the democrats take back the white house then they'll just declare victory over COVID and everything will go away. But it didn't, it just kept getting worse and more. And I think they just it was in the ether at that point, And people's identities were tied to being um, pro lockdowners. Like, why would you want your identity tied to that? And to your point, some of them, they still wear masks to this day to signal what, that they're on the good side, that they're team good. Um, and it's just, it's now just another piece of the kind of political landscape and the dynamics that exists
0: you know that, that's a great point that you said about the uh people who made it their personality because these were people who didn't have a personality <laughs> until march 11th of 2020 <laughs> is that they became the pro lockdowners they became the quote-unquote the karens that uh I, like i remembered hearing from tv stations that the people work at tv stations on the switchboard were saying i saw somebody walk into an apple and they i thought restaurants are supposed to be closed down and the switchboard operator has to go uh did it ever occur to you that people are probably getting Doordash, and somebody has to physically go again something that they didn't think about that the food fairy shows up at their you press two buttons on your phone you get a cheeseburger and it just magically shows up well who cooked the burger how'd the bur- how the burger how'd the bun how'd the condiments get to the restaurant get to the
1: restaurant
0: it's yeah. that i pencil it's it's the the great i pencil uh essay for people who ever want to go check that out and they couldn't figure this out And it it, this can continue throughout 2021. There was, of course, and then the new variants popped up, and then slowly in 2022 they just a lot of places phased out the vaccine cards and everything. And what concerns me right now, uh, because I think your book and other people have written, but I know Tom Woods, I believe, is coming out with a book as well about it. But chronicling this time is a cautionary tale. Yet what I feared at the time, because I'm thinking, look. I'm a podcaster. I'm a radio guy. I'm I'm documenting this in real time, but more people need to document this because it seems to be getting memory hold. That's what I feared then. And I think it's going on now that I think that's right. From my perspective, I see a lot of people going, Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, we had to lock down for a couple of weeks. We watched Netflix and we ordered. uh, we ordered margaritas to go. And it was like a, it was a temporary. <laughs> Wasn't that a
1: nice time that we had all yeah, oh, where we a got vacation. to stay home and be together? Yeah, that Same. seems to be, I, yeah, I agree with you. It does need to be documented. Um, there's another book that's out now, which I have not read yet by Jonah, Sarah a reporter that says basically lockdowns, the big fail. I think it's called the big fail. Um I haven't read it. So I don't want to comment on how good or not good it is. Um, But at least it's in the title that lockdowns were a big fail. Um, But you're right. And I wrote the book with that in mind. Like I, you know, I didn't care so much how well it did. I wanted a document, like from a personal perspective, not a journalistic perspective, but from the Personal perspective of somebody that saw it early, spoke up, and suffered the repercussions and the cancellation of that. And I document very clearly because I was following it so closely. But we and so I wrote it with that in mind. Like if somebody read this artifact in ten years to understand what happened during COVID, would it be there? And it it is there. You know, I lay it. I lay it all. I lay it all out. And I hope a lot of other people do. I think what what frustrates me, and I'm sure you at this point in time. Um, there's another book about the impact of school closures by a reporter named Anya Kamenets. This is you know, an example. There seems to be widespread agreement that school closures were terribly harmful. But they're st- they're no finally
0: way. starting to say it on Bill Maher's show of all places. I mean, this is like the you know, he he was like the liberal Jesus for a long time in Bill yeah. Maher. And when you have people like Andrew Cuomo and the NYU professor who says, I was a harsh lockdowner for school closures, and uh, yeah, yeah, it turns out we were wrong. Now, they don't apologize. They just well, say, well, we need some amnesty. Well, <laughs> okay. yeah.
1: I mean, what I was going to say is there's acknowledgement, but there's not accountability. There's yes. a, it's there's no, like, these people did it. These government officials these public health bureaucrats who were given way too much power, made terrible decisions. They loved having that power over us and they milked it for all it was worth. And they made poor decisions given the data that we had, and they could never have that much power and authority again. I mean, I don't want Cuomo on the Bill Maher show. He was nope. the worst. He led the country. Well, Gavin Newsom, I believe, was the worst, but he was one of the worst. He does not get to have redemption and not get asked hard questions on Bill Maher. And Scott Galloway, the NYU professor again a position of leadership or authority but he goes on and he's like well maybe we were overcautious, but we should all get some grace and forgiveness no where's Mm -hmm. my grace and forgiveness i was actually right and i have received no grace and forgiveness and i don't want to make this about me i mean people like me people have lost careers they've lost their reputations for being right and what we're still told is well you may have been right but it was for the wrong reason so you're still a bad person i mean i'm paraphrasing whereas Scott Galloway and, you know, Emily Oster's view, Brown professor is, well, we may have been wrong, but it was for the right reasons. So we're still the good people. F that.
0: Yeah, I, I can't. the When that story came out about a year ago in, was it Time or, no, it was The Atlantic that said, how about a a pandemic amnesty? And it goes through this that whole, was, and I know you know exactly what Oster, I'm talking about. Yeah, it was. Well, it, it was a uh, spring of 2020. And there was a couple or there was a family that was not wearing a mask. While I'm like, and, and we, we were really upset because the, the, the other people weren't masking when we were going hiking. And then it says like, turns out that there wasn't any, any data that COVID spreads that way through hiking and everything like that. And it's <laughs> like, how about we just, let's just bury the hatchet. And I'm like, yeah, no, we're not going to bury the hatchet. And I think with uh, I, no. I've experienced it with my career. I've had friends and colleagues just they they turn their back on me. They unfriended, they unfollowed, they blocked me. They're yeah. like how dare you? That do you you want to kill my grandmother? Don't you understand? I have a kidney issue. And it's like yeah, okay. And, and to watch that in real time, and people don't know what it's like because I think the the American people are reasonable people, but they're also they don't want to rock the boat. When you think about the colonists, that there wasn't really a lot of like radical people in the early days of the in the Revolutionary War that wanted to overthrow the the government in England and I, and the parliament. And, and I think with uh, the American people, we are reasonable. And if we're told, hey, uh, or they're putting a mask mandate on Monday, most people are going to go. Ah, well, I prefer not to, but I guess that's what I got to do. I don't want to get yep. fired. I don't want to get yep. in trouble at work. I don't want HR talking to me. And they preyed on those people. So for the dissident voices like yours, like mine, like so many others, we had to suffer the consequences. And here yeah. we are, three years later, going, guys. How about an olive branch? No, yeah, I don't no,
1: see. I don't feel like it. Um, and, you know, I, I the one thing I will say is I don't think it's just the American people. I think and this is one of the things because in in the heat of it, I was like, what. Why aren't more people saying something? But I think as I've studied this and looked across time and geographies, I think most people go along. Mm. They just do. I mean, the Milgram experiment bears it out. I think you've got 10% on either side. You know, you've got 10% who are willing to kind of stand up and, you know, suffer the slings and arrows. You've got 10% that are true believers and you've got, those are the ones still masking everywhere. And then you've got sort of 80% in the middle who are like, there's a range, but I'll just go along and hope this ends soon. No, that's not me. Um, and eventually a lot of those people will come around and they'll pretend they were always there because everybody thinks of themselves as a hero in their own minds. Um, but I somehow that made me feel better. Like, I think that's just human nature. I don't think there's anything particularly egregious about Americans or people that did this during COVID. I think that is just true. It's just true. People just go along, um, unfortunately. Uh, but somebody has to stand up and say, this is not the right thing.
0: Yeah. Somebody- and yeah, like you said, everybody kind of will fall in line and say, like, I was always against it. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't hear you, but uh, it's, that's just the <laughs> way that. things are.
1: <laughs> yeah. I missed that. I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you through all the yelling at me that I'm a racist. Um, but yeah, it is. I'm not, you know, look, I, I, I have a I, I, one group we haven't mentioned that I have a special disdain for is the journalists Mm, um, who went along during this time, because I think journalists and the press are supposed to be a a bulwark against um, excessive governmental power. The arbiters of
0: truth. Democracy dies in darkness.
1: Yes, they're supposed (laughs) to guard us against um, excessive corporate greed. um, And yet journalists during this time, science journalists in particular, just published you know, the CDC press releases as if they were journalism, they published Pfizer press releases as if they were journalism, and they failed to interrogate the issues. And I'm just like a normie if I can look at the data, because it was all there from the beginning. I would expect that a science journalist could as well. And there are very few journalists who from the beginning push back David Zweig being one of them. um, Alex Berenson. Yes, those are about it.
0: Yeah, that's that really was about it other than like podcasters and radio, some radio guys and like more alternative media. But yeah, no, I saw it in firsthand is working at a radio station that was a news station in the morning and essentially going on the air with a written press release by the governor via his press secretary and the health director of the state of Ohio. We had this thing. here's another thing that bothered me in Ohio. Our governor is Mike DeWine. And every day at two o'clock, he would do a press conference that uh, all the wine moms would call it Wine with DeWine. So while they're at their Zoom calls and they're working remotely, they put their TV on at two o'clock. So our governor would uh, tell us about the latest coronavirus statistics, then... He'd send it over to the health director to say why we need to stay home and mask up and everything and uh, not wear hazmat suits. And then you go back to the governor talking about what college uh, tie that he has. Like this one's from Oberlin College. It's uh, located in Oberlin, Ohio. These are the colors from I don't care, Mike. No one. Yeah. It, it, it turned into a thing where it's uh, the, the, a bunch of people would pour glasses glass of Chardonnay or cab or. Uh, Blanc, and, and they'd sit there next to their laptop, go like, oh, I'm only sipping. I'm not getting drunk at work because we're doing wine with DeWine. And and it's just it, bringing up these things, actually, like just rereading your book and, re- and going through a lot of your interviews in the past to study for the interview. I started getting angry again because yeah. this can happen again. And I don't think yes. people realize that just because we went through this and uh, like I, I have some of my friends go, OK, Tony, you were right. Over. Maybe they shouldn't have locked down, but it's, it was years ago. Let's not keep talking about it. And I'm saying there's a possibility that this could happen again, and well, we yeah. need to be prepared.
1: Yes, I don't think, and that's why I mean what I mean by accountability because I do believe it will happen again unless we firmly establish that in the public public record, not like some rando like me writing a book, but in the public record that this was a, a the, the the approach was a devastating catastrophe and that we caused so much more harm than good and this can never happen again like that has to be part of the public record we can never shut schools down it isn't it is not only ineffective and it's not only an atrocious civil rights civil rights violation but it's a moral abomination you cannot tell people in a free country they're not allowed to have people in their home they're not allowed to have a protest unless it's the approved kind of protest for you know uh for for black lives matter but not for not if you're an anti lockdowner or or an open schooler you can't have those protests we would post um notifications for rallies we were having on facebook and they would be taken down within minutes um not by human beings but by, by facebook um that's not the country we live in you know we now know notable renowned doctors who went against the mainstream were censored and kicked the great off of Barrington Do- declaration yes um people risked their jobs they lost their jobs this cannot happen this is not America and so it needs to be established that not only was it an unfortunate outcome but it was a terrible terrible policy and can't happen again the government leaders And the public health leaders who were given way too much power by the government leaders, and they all used each other to like say, Oh, it wasn't my decision. Right. Like Newsom will say, well, I didn't decide it was the local municipalities or, Oh, but I'm not deciding my public health person is telling me. And the public health person says, well, it's not my decision. It's the governor's decision. So they're all like this.
0: Yeah. That's what, what? that's what Fauci said. I I never said that they should lock down the car. I just only had some recommendations about what can happen. I'm like, (laughs) come on. Come on. Okay. well, he knew it, it's
1: exactly fun- what would happen. He knew exactly.
0: Oh, yeah. It, it's funny you said accountability because I want to sort of switch gears a little bit because we talked about this yeah. off the air. So two, three years ago, you have people online, extremely online people or a lot of like far left wing coworkers and everything or people who just working outside of whatever business flooding inboxes of hr representatives by saying you know one of your employees is saying that schools should be open you're one of your employees is saying that this vaccine doesn't work and is an anti-vaxxer and anti this this and this a lot of those same people it's a weird crossover with the Venn diagram are now experiencing their form of accountability, that they said there is no cancel culture. It's called accountability culture. And that if you get fired from your job or you get uh, uh, kind of burned at the stake figuratively, that you deserve it because you are being held accountable. Well, now in the last month now, month plus uh, since the attack, uh, Hamas's attack on Israel, you are seeing a lot of very pro-Palestinian slash pro-Hamas Talking points that are being mainstreamed. And yeah. when you have somebody who's uh who's a pro-Palestinian on Facebook saying from the river to the sea, and then the next day they get an email that says, please come to the office and bring a box with your stuff. And they're saying, What the heck, man? Uh, I why am I getting fired just because I'm posting something socio-political or whatever? On what? Well, why why can't I say this? I was just speaking my mind. I was speaking my truth here. And I'm just like. Welcome, friend.
1: Yeah, look, I don't cheer for anyone getting um, fired or censored. I think they should be able to go. And I honestly do. I think they should be able to march and they should be able to say those things. Um, I do think there's a line. You know, I think if you um, hit a guy over the head at a rally and he dies, that just happened in Los Angeles. That's oh, yeah. a line because that's violence. That's murder. Let's be clear. And I think he actually. Or, or if charged.
0: you're calling for mass genocide of an entire well, people, as opposed to saying, "Hey, uh, I think my my preschool kids should be in school right now." There's a little bit of a difference. I would say.
1: Or if you're you know part of a student group and you chase a bunch of Jewish students into the library and they can't get out, I mean that's false imprisonment. Like that's force. That's not yes. speech, that's force. And that's a crime. So there is a line, I don't think it's really a fuzzy line. I think if you want to march and stay stupid shit that you don't even know what it means, you don't even know what river it is, or what sea and you want to say that shit. I think it's dumb, but you can do it. Not my side, not the side I'm on. But and I do understand it's a complex situation, but it's not that complex. 1,400 people, probably more, because I am losing hope every day that any of those hostages are alive, um, were murdered in the most brutal, brutal manner. I don't think there's anything, you know, complicated there. But that, that aside, people have lots of views on this on this issue. But yes, it is interesting. They're now all of a sudden finding their free speech backbone. Um, And they're screaming about being doxxed. I'm like, you know, the Harvard kids who signed the letter saying it was all Israel's fault are now screaming that, you know, their names have been released. You signed a letter. No (laughs) one's releasing your name. That's not being doxxed. You know, I've always used my name in social media. And, you know, some people who cared about what was happening would say, well, you're being doxxed. I'm like, I'm not being doxxed. It's my name. Now, I'm not psyched if people post pictures of my house, which they do. And that's yeah. that's that, that's crazy. But I'm not being doxed. If you sign a letter and you're a member of a group and you say this entire thing is Israel's fault before the bodies have even been identified on October 8th, that's not doxing. So, yeah, it's curious that now they're all sort of pro free speech. But I still think it's conditional. I still think if another you know COVID happened tomorrow, my speech you know it's just their speech they want to be permissible mm-hmm. they don't really believe in a culture of free speech these are the same people who think misgendering um is an aggressive act and should be a criminal act they they you know they they don't really want free speech yeah they and just they're want it for it, themselves.
0: And a lot of it, like we mentioned about the government approved talking points during COVID is that uh, stay home, stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, this and this, get vaccinated, vaccine, save lives, blah, blah, blah. Just the whole uh, gambit of T-shirt slogans that you were seeing from that.
1: We see and that now, now you
0: have a very, I don't want to say anti-Israel or anti-Zion or anti semitic media but there's a lot of whether it's bbc whether it's even new york times that is propping up these talking points that are very uh anything like i said calls for genocide to whatever and it's emboldening a lot of people and then those people are posting that stuff on social media almost not understanding that you do realize that uh, all of your pro or anti-jewish stuff and your boss is chances are it could very well be jewish and it's giving you your walking papers and you say what the heck why am i getting fired it's like because you're calling for genocide on your facebook page uh and they say well, well this is cancel culture it's like again I don't. I don't. You made the rules. Cheer, you made the
1: exactly. rules. Exactly.
0: I don't cheer on cancel. I. I. I would love to live in a world where if you do, or if you are pro-Palestinian, you're pro-Israel, you're pro-Ukraine, you're pro-Russia, you're you're anti-vaccine, you're pro-vaccine. Then we should all have these discussions. It's just we dis. We the collective we decided in the last few years that you no know, dissident voices need to be shunned, and that's the problem. Is that. Uh, now we're choosing which dissident voices were allowed to prop up and which ones need to be completely wiped off the map
1: yeah exactly and I you know like it gets weird the line because to you know to the point we discussed earlier like we were billed as eugenicists and murderers and genocidal maniacs who just wanted to kill the immune compromise and so that's why I sort of reserve space for the marchers who I would argue, you know, they don't even realize with the slogans they're citing um, that they do call for genocide of of Israelis and often they veer into Jews. We, you know, we've heard gas the Jews, we've heard clean the world with a Jewish star, you know, a star of David on it. Like, I don't know, it's kind of on the nose as far as I wanna, or I'm okay with killing all the Jews. We've now heard people saying, yeah, Hitler had the right idea. We wish he finished what he started. But again, this is speech. And so, unless you cross over into actual harm and violence, I argue I would still make the case it's permissible because you know we were told you can't say those things because it's genocidal. Like they can decide anything is genocidal if you misgender someone, that's trans genocide, which is obviously not true. And so I'm kind of for yeah, march in the streets. But I guess if your employer, future employer, and you don't have a job right now, sees you did that later, and is like. Eh. I got a lot of employees that aren't going to be comfortable with that and they don't want to hire you. It's also different to not hire someone versus to fire them, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't know. The speech is fine, but it's crossing over into what feels like violence. We're seeing a 400 percent increase, I think, in anti-Semitic incidents of anti-Semitic violence. I don't know. There's like a real mob mentality happening, I think, at a lot of these rallies with the sloganeering, and they do escalate to violence because they feel so righteous. So their violence is justified.
0: Well, you said mob mentality. It's uh, you it's part of your book title, the subtitle of the book there, but Levi's unbuttoned, uh, by Jennifer say, it's uh the woke mob took my job, but gave me my voice. And uh, it's available there as well as chalked up, go, go buy both books. I mean, these are both very important books for you. And, uh, I mean, uh, from what I read, you uh, you were offered because the, the Levi's basically had no place for you. The CEO was willing to give you a a million-dollar severance after 23 years with the company. And because you would have had to take – if you took that severance, you would have had to have an NDA. And you didn't want to do that. You wanted to be able to write a book and still say whatever you want. So uh, wh- wh- what's uh, – how, how have you been – are you – I guess using the terms now, white-pilled, are you white-pilled for the future? What's that mean? I haven't
1: heard that one. What does that mean?
0: So uh, red-pilled, it's kind of like it's the matrix thing. It's red-pilled and blue-pilled. It's not necessarily political, but it's red-pilling as you wake up and you realize that all these institutions are lying to you and everything like that. And blue-pilled are people that just go about their daily lives. Black-pilled and white-pilled. Black-pilled is everything sucks. Everything's going in the wrong direction. There is no the future. We're going to be taken over, whatever, or white-pilled. And, and Michael Malice has talked about this too, where he said, think if you are living in the Soviet Union in 1981, that in one decade from now, there will be no more Soviet Union. You would laugh. You would say that that's impossible. And that, right. there, that white pill of, there is a possibility. I was black-pilled for a while during COVID. I'm like, there is no way that this is going to be two weeks to slow the spread, 15 days to flatten the curve. This is going to last way too long. But to be honest, yeah. as we were recording this in November 2023, I wouldn't have been surprised if you told me in, in uh, let's say, April or May of 2020 that by 2023 there will be no mandates be no masks except for a a couple of lunatics who are still doing so to virtue signal that at at
1: the palestine rallies mostly
0: (laughs) yeah well they got to cover their face because they're afraid of COVID. yeah Yeah. or
1: getting uh, fired i would have
0: i would have thought we would still be doing this three years later but the white pill even though i was black pill but people were white pilled and saying that there was enough lawsuits that were coming up against this so yeah i'll i'll take it back to you do you you hopeful think, for the future for the near and distant future
1: yes I have to, I choose to be white pilled otherwise I don't think I could make it through the day and I think you know my being outspoken in gymnastics is you know is sort of proof in my mind that like if you say it loud enough and you say it persistently enough and it's true the world will come around now that took 10 years I you know I kept that in my mind as I was speaking out about COVID, I was unable to beat the clock, but yeah, I I don't know how you go through life any other way without being just totally depressed. So I do believe we will get to a point, it's not gonna be that soon, um, where it is established fact that this was catastrophic as far as the response um, to what, at least at this point is a mild respiratory virus. Um, We can argue over whether it was from the beginning or not, I have thoughts on that. I'm not going to get into them. Um, But we will get to that. We will get to that point. Um, I I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday and this morning via text. He's been he's a like a family therapist and he's been outspoken um, amongst his sort of cohort of of child and family therapists about um, gender ideology and sort of gender affirming care and giving transitioning very young children and, and saying it's not good. It's a disservice to these children. And he's getting a lot of pushback. And it's been really, really difficult. And I told him, just keep 10 years from now in your mind. You, you have to keep it in your mind. It, it will happen. It's un, unraveling in most European countries at this point. They're no longer, you know, putting very young children on purity blockers and um, cross-hormone drugs they're they're quite a bit further along than we are they started sooner they're 10 years out they're 15 years out they're seeing the harms that were done and so just keep 10 years from now in your mind but know that it's going to be a long hard journey and know that you're doing the right thing so i am white pilled i guess and i'm glad you told me that term because i i just i believe the truth outs in the end and i believe we get to the right answers and there's a lot of suffering that can happen between now and then but you have to believe that you have to
0: the last question I'll ask you, Jennifer, and I really appreciate you being on here. Please go buy her books, plural, not just the one we've been talking about, but also the uh, the earlier chalked up one. Um, I, I've been let go. As someone who works in media, you lose your job, whether it's you say something on Twitter or whatever, you get thrown out, or the company is downsizing, you get let go. It's happened before. And I, I'll have like a radio station T-shirt that I worked at. I'm like, well, I don't need this anymore. Why would I be wearing this? So I'll ask you. Do you have yes. any Levi's in your house still? Do you still wear them?
1: Almost every day.
0: Really? So did, like, are like every time you put your jeans on, do you think like, this is the company that uh, I had feuded with. They had a bad falling out. Or are you just like, these are damn good jeans.
1: <laughs> you know, I don't know if you wear Levi's. I've been wearing them since I was six. Um, You know, I wore them almost exclusively starting in my 20s. And then certainly when I started working there at 29, I've worn them exclusively ever since. I have probably over a hundred pairs. The 501 is my favorite. It's my favorite jean, it's the best jean. So I don't think about it. I wear my favorite jeans. I pretty much only wear jeans. You know, if you work at a jeans company for a long time, you don't have a lot of other clothing. So unless I wanna like burn 90% of my wardrobe and then buy all new stuff, Plus they're my favorite. They're the most comfortable. They're the best. They make your butt look the best.
0: So you <laughs> <laughs> so, so you just you put them on your like you, you just take it out of your mind that like, hey, I used to work for this company. It's just like, well, you know what? These uh these still fit and these they still look good on me. So
1: <laughs> Well, here's what I'll say is I still believe in the promise of that brand. I didn't I worked at the company for a long time. I still believe in the goodness of not just the product, but the values. I think we've all just like I believe in the promise of America and we had a little bump in the road the last few years, but you have to still believe that we stand on and lead the world and freedom and civil rights. And we fucked up for a few years and we'll get it back. And so, yeah, I still wear the brand because I still love it. I love the, the values that they profess to espouse and I love the product. So.
0: In this picture guess- on the cover is, are those Levi's or are those have to be like off brand just because you didn't want to get into any uh, legalese? <laughs>
1: No, that's all, guys The bottoms sure. are five hundred ones. The jacket, the T-shirt, all of it.
0: <laughs> Very nice. All right. Well, it, it, Jennifer, it was a real pleasure speaking with you, and uh, good luck not only with the book but everything going forward. I'm glad you're white pilled um, because it's it's tough out there, especially if you're if you're a parent. I, I'm working on trying to have children myself, but. Uh, it uh I I can't even imagine what parents had to go through the last couple of years and uh, what what's going to happen going forward but uh best of luck to you Thank and you. dealing with this and dealing with your detractors and uh it seems like uh it's only been a couple of years but it seems like you really are coming out on on the other side and looking pretty good.
1: <laughs> Hope you are too. Thanks.
0: Not Thank you, easy. Jennifer. And I yeah. appreciate you folks for listening to the Check Your Brain podcast. we will be back with you with another free episode of this fine podcast, if I do say so myself, coming up next Wednesday. Bye, everybody.